You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. Oh, I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drunk. Beat out old Welcome to Community Radio 3CR. This is Radical Australia's. My name's Joseph Toscano. I'm with uh, the world's second greatest producer, oh. Kelly Whitlock. How are you? Whitlock. Oh, I don't know what your name is. You've, I've been demoted. I thought I was the world's best radio producer. You're not happy with me this afternoon. Look, I'm very happy with you, but there is a greater producer than you or me. Who's that? The late Uncle Jack Charles. Yeah. Right. Rest in peace, Jack. Uncle Jack. Yeah, and if you're interested in Uncle Jack, we interviewed Uncle Jack about three or four years ago here on Radical Australia. And if you go to 3cr.org.au forward slash Radical Australia, Jack Charles, you'll be able to look at that interview. And it's not the normal type of interview that Uncle Jack did. It gives you a a very good insight into his life and uh, what happened. And obviously we extend our sympathies to his uh, relatives and his many friends around the country as well as overseas. Our guest... We have a special guest, which uh, Kelly has rustled up, is Mr. Timothy Tim Neville. Thanks for having me. How are you going? Good, mate. Look, uh, we're thankful that you're here. <laughs> That's the main thing. Yeah. Now, look, we're going to start kind of at the beginning, then we're going to go in and out, and it's, uh, it's only 56 minutes long, and there's no ads, there's no community announcements, just about you and me, and Kelly will come in if I get astropolis or difficult, you know, to save me. All right, just relax. It's it's easy. It's easy, mate. Within the ten minutes, you won't even know you're in a studio, although you've got these things over your ears. So, what year were you born? Uh, ninety five. Nineteen ninety five. Twenty seven. Twenty seven. You're just yeah. a, a youngster. Yeah, you're a youngster. Were you born here in Melbourne or? Yeah, yeah. Born and raised in in uh, in and around Nam. So, uh, out in the country. Where? Uh, Gisborne. Gisborne. Yeah, that's not the country. That's almost no. not a suburb of Melbourne, isn't it? Semi-rural. Yeah, maybe in your days it was country. I don't know about now. Yeah. They've got a great shop in Gisborne that sells really good quality leather and wool products. Do you know that one? Yeah. Uh, no, no. no, no. It's Kelly, good. Kelly. You, <laughs> I was you, there you, a couple of weeks ago. Now, Kelly, you need to save the guest. The chair has collapsed from under it. All right, I'll do I that. I collapsed the chair. No. Is it all right, Tim? You're all right, Would you yeah. like to swap We want you to be comfortable, mate. I just... Yeah, this is three CR, you know. It is a volunteer station, so you know. If you got any, although this is one of the new chairs that was donated to us, has it been sabotaged because Tim's here? (laughs) (laughs) 
So obviously you went to school somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I went to school in Taylor's Lakes. Ah, three hundred three eight. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, what is primary school and secondary? Yeah. What was what school like? Uh, Over Newton. What? Over Newton. It's yeah. like a western suburbs. Doesn't really doesn't really have many other schools near it. It's sort of just yeah. on the yeah. side of the freeway. If you drive up the quarter, you can see it. Yeah, yeah. But how did you cope? How did I cope? Yeah. What was it like for you at school? Yeah. Uh I was. Um, undiagnosed ADHD my whole school life, but managed to right. managed to get myself through. I um, was yeah usual going going in and out of sort of being bullied and be, being a nerd, and mm. I sort of like led this campaign at the school when I was eight to remove all the plastic rubbish from the school canteen, and so it wasn't very. Popular after that happened, people right. people wanted their Coke bottles and uh-huh, 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 their foil uh-huh. trays, but yeah, yeah. started a bit of a crusade and then got yeah. a bit, sort of just set the tone for the path that I was going to take there on. Yeah, look, I reckon you had ADS, mm. authority defiance syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at eight, you know, organising. So you must have had a. An inkling of what was going on in the planet then, did you? Yeah. Well, was that your parents doing or...? No, no. No? No. It was um, my year three, year four teacher. Uh, oh, blame the teacher. Radicalised by the teachers. I showed, showed promise in the area of understanding climate and I was quite angry that the then Prime Minister, John Howard, refused to sign the Kyoto Protocol. At age eight? At eight, yeah. And so... The the um, teacher took uh, full advantage of my enthusiasm, right? And uh, helped me, you know, do some of the plastic rubbish stuff. But also, we wrote a big letter to the prime minister and collected signatures. And mm-hmm. I went around to every office in school, sat, stood at the door of all the assemblies, collected all of these signatures on this petition, sent it to the prime minister. About a month, two months later, I got a. Yeah, very long, kindly worded "fuck off" from <laughs> from from the PM, mm. or probably from the PM's office. But yeah, yeah, mm. that sort of mm. I know so gave, gave me a bit of cynicism about the 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 petition sort the, of approach. What, what, working up the right channels, you didn't think it worked. Yeah, you got a letter back. Yeah, you know, <laughs> at least you weren't totally ignored like some of us are. Yeah, that's true. What was on the petition? Uh, it was a I guess it was a multi-argument sort of mini essay thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, trying to um, compel the prime minister or the liberal establishment to take the crisis seriously and to, uh, I guess, reckon with the with the reality that's coming and uh, start by ratifying the Kyoto Protocol, which didn't happen until Rudd and then the Rudd sort of era was characterised by them using very creative accounting to meet those targets and so mm. the I guess, yeah I'm grateful that my sort of doe-eyed belief in the the, the state sort of pulling their, pulling their bootstraps up and mm-hmm. going about setting targets and achieving things 
the I guess super mainstream way. I got sort of that out of my system quite early. Hmm. Let's Fix- just, let's go back a step. So young eight. Yep. Why did the climate emergency seem so dire to you at such a young age? That's twenty years ago. Um, I. Good question. I don't know. I started learning about politics at that age because I'd, um, I'd sort of, uh, I'd acquired a copy of Green Day's American Idiot album around that time, and I kept, you know, asking my dad what were all these historical events that were being referred to in these lyrics, and started learning more and more. And then, you know, a couple of years after that, it was Rage Against the Machine, and then it was just. It was just on, right? But yeah, there was there was just there was just something about the 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 dread and the injustice of the sort of like post nine eleven Bush era suburban hell that's depicted in that mm. album, and I guess the 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 dread, I guess that apathetic dread that they that they were sort of trying to convey in that particular era was something that I related to really heavily because at the time I was really into, I guess, not global warming as much as I was into um, the more visible, more obvious stuff like uh, conservation, deforestation and uh, masses of plastic litter that were Mm. accumulating in the local lakes and in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Mm. Did did you find you were being ostracised in primary school by your uh, young friends? Uh, no, I think I actually skated by with the whole, like, political thing, more or less, because everyone was so distracted and didn't right. give a shit, shit. Right. that yes. you could I was sort of, like, like living this mm. second life, mm. and mm. it only sort of became really apparent that there was a bunch of stuff changing at the school when the plastic disappeared from the canteens and mm-hmm. the I guess the teacher took the fall for that one. Right, that's good. So, high school, did you get to high school at least? Yeah. How did that go? Yeah, high school was good because I'd gotten a head start on my world affairs and my world right. history and mm-hmm. I didn't really study much at all and just sort of relied on the knowledge that I already had about most things, which was, you know, good good enough. I um, was really trying to, I guess, expose the corruption of the world and decided that I was going to be a journalist, and so picked all humanities and histo- history subjects and uh, studied media and... Uh, did a lot of filmmaking on my own out, outside of school as well and learning how to write, edit and record um, video and audio and yeah, I was doing sort of youth radio. and. Right. What, what were you doing youth radio? Uh, I was part of like a sort of radio show that was put on from like a studio at a school out in the western suburbs somewhere i can't remember what it was but it was a bunch of a bunch of dorks who had like met each other through doing debating and inter-school debating and Mm -hmm. all of that stuff decided to like try and learn how to operate a studio that i mean that was only for a couple of weeks but it was 
enough for me to feel like I was doing the right thing and I was in the right place. And so I studied journalism at uni. And right, let's go back. Let's go back. Let's go back. We got a whole fifty-six minutes. You're only one. Yeah, you're not that. Yeah, not that. Old. Well, the whole fifty-six minutes is for me. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, shit. <laughs> <laughs> hey. I'm sick and tired of right. listening to bloody radio programs that are interrupted by community announcements and advertisements. Uh-huh. This is the only program in Australia, I can guarantee you, where we talk to somebody who's got something to say for 56 minutes. So just relax. It'll all come out. You know, you may have things you want to tell me. You've got a whole bloody book full of notes. Forget about the notes. <laughs> just pretend we're chatting away in prison somewhere, all right? Yeah. Okay, we've got nothing else to do but have a you know, yarn. All right. about where you came from and what's happening. Because the whole point of the program is to show people that radicals come from every, you know, every aspect of life. Some start very young, some start very old. But it's your experiences which has an effect on the listenership. And the other beauty about this program is Kelly, our wonderful producer, Kelly Whitworth, she podcasts the program, so it's there for all eternity. So you could use it for your funeral or something. You never know. <laughs> Great. <laughs> All right. All right. Okay. So I'm interested in this concept that you called yourselves dorks. Why dorks yeah. and nerds? To me, you sound like really exciting young people. You remind me of myself when I was a, a youngster in the 60s, you know? We obviously had different issues then, but the fact that you were just so full on and uh, full of life and the fact that you felt you could change things and you were willing to do things. Did you have any footprint on the on the net at that stage? With, with your videos and films, how, how did you... Or was it just a personal thing? Um, I've, never really, I've never really done it for recognition, so I used to just make films to... No, not for recognition, I'm saying a footprint. Did your work go out on... Did you, how did you distribute it? I think I ended up retrospectively distributing some of these things on social media, but I think I just used them for... Use them for, I don't know, sh- showing other people and mm-hmm. just l- working on it so I could learn how to do it more, right. more than it was a like a public outreach campaign because there was, mm. at the time, there was so, so much super effective, super high production value stuff that was being put out. But I, um, yeah, I was sort of just really focused on learning how to do it and trying to make like the ultimate case for getting off your ass and doing something. Yeah, yeah. I didn't quite feel like I was there enough to publish stuff somewhere. Right, right. Well, you know, it it happens, you know. You you, you will. You will get to that stage. People look back and say, that's where he came from. That's what he did. That's what he's doing. And the fact is, you you, you used a very important two words, three words, (laughs) off your ass. Yeah. Because that's the key, isn't it? That's the key to activism. It's off your ass. Us, because most of us are basically spectators at our own funerals. Mm. You know, I know, I know. You think I'm being maudlin? Don't think that, Kelly. All right, yeah. So, you went to uni, you said. Yeah. Which one? Monash. Oh God, that radical ratbag place, which isn't that anymore. It's just a nice place to go to. So, how did you? What did you do? Media or? Um, I did arts and double majored in journalism and international right. studies because right. at the time I was very focused on um, I guess human rights abuses and the I guess hegemony of western 
capitalist democracies and um, studied a lot of um, a lot of sort of like in international politics and also was studying um, journalism mostly for print um, because I felt like it was the most balanced and sort of long form sort of you know truth telling exposure sort of thing and mm-hmm. um, it's a pity people have forgotten that isn't it they mm. think it's all about the trivial you know and it's the immediate but you know you've stumbled on a very important fact uh, the legacy media is still quite powerful in sendi- setting the agenda for the community every day because as you know obviously you know you see something in an editorial or a newspaper and next day it becomes the talking point for all other forms of media including social media mm. that's why our friend Mr Burdock continues to produce the Australian although it's never made a profit in its life did you know that it's never I, made a buck <laughs> I didn't know it was I mean he, the profit the profit's indirect oh exactly he's never the actual paper's never made a profit but has the only national daily they attempt to set the agenda, the political, social, cultural, political, environmental, you name it, agenda. And they succeed, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Now, getting back to your university, what were the lecturers like? Were they sympathetic? Or the lecturers? At Monash, you know, in your, in your courses. Yeah, there was, there, was a couple of, there was a couple of pretty, uh, yeah, switched on lecturers certainly like none of them who were like pushing people to go out and do direct action or whatever but definitely Mm. people who were sort of presenting the idea of protest as something that's a good thing and something that's Mm. under threat and something Mm. that needs Mm. defense of its own and Mm. i'm going to ask you a question i don't know if you know the answer but it kind of highlights what you're talking about there is one country in the world that has got a monument outside Parliament House to the unknown protester. Do you know which country that is? No. Iceland. Right. If you find yourself in Iceland, go to the Parliament House, and there it is, a monument to the unknown protester, because they understand the, the significance of protest as far as change is concerned. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, I, I was I was amazed when I first saw it. To be honest, amazed, totally amazed. So, did you finish your course? Yeah by by the end of uni, I was organising as an activist, and right, it right. was you finished your course. So, what degree did you did you get? Bat- Bachelor of Arts. Right, major in journalism or something. Journalism and international yeah. studies. Yeah, that's not a good kind of look for a long term job, is it? No. <laughs> They didn't offer you jobs everywhere, left, right, and centre. Uh, I was I was poached for a policy writing job. Excellent. I chose not to do that because. Can, I, can you tell you? Can you tell us who poached you? Uh, it was someone who was like a, I guess, a former lecturer who was also a uh, public servant mm-hmm. on and off in Canberra. Um, set me up with an interview to sort of jump right into the public service but as a activist at that time I was just fuck that <laughs> no, no way am I going to go and sit in an office in Canberra and then hopefully do my best to interpret what the decisions have already been made uh, not even write legislation no, no not even that just interpret no so you, you talk about you use the A word so what type of activism were you doing in university um 
while I was in uni, I was doing most of the, I guess, the off-my-ass but legal stream of activism. So I was going to a lot of rallies and sort of contributing, volunteering to help make rallies happen, mostly for climate and whistleblower sort of stuff, Um, volunteering First Nations protests and trying to, um, I guess, doing a lot of fundraising. Never really got into the political party thing, but definitely, um, yeah, trying to support other activists uh, to, like, yeah, I guess at the time I hadn't, like, we don't have a very continuous culture of doing direct action in public in this country. And so, well, disruptive direct action, I should say. And so Mm -hmm. the, uh, all, all I was exposed to at the time was just doing rallies and trying to get the largest number of people to show their support behind a certain issue and um i was um yeah particularly uh busy also like doing a lot of letter writing and lobbying the government to try and do something about julian assange at the time and um i'd also was attempting freelance journalism which went horrifically bad why is that uh because i decided to do freelancing because i thought i'd be able to act like i all of the jobs that were available in journalism were all working for corporate newspapers and radio stations that are just advertising machines and like all all of that just sounded like fucking hell to me and so i thought i'd do freelancing but uh, i learned doing freelancing that you have to write clickbait uh, in order to make money enough money to support yourself doing Activist, uh, doing journalism, you have to write BuzzFeed quizzes, or you have to write clickbaity articles. Just like the 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 entire the entire just I don't know the 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 end of the earth is nigh type of thing. Yeah, just the insincerity of like tricking people into reading your article, even if it's full of good stuff. Just the mm, mm. just the insincerity and that like just the the lack of authenticity. I think is really really damaging to the point that you're trying to make because you shouldn't you shouldn't have to convince people to pay attention people should be paying attention because of the truth which is in the headline what and what, what what is the truth the truth uh, you use the word truth i usually i usually kind of get a bit uh, wary when somebody tells me that they know the truth the truth the truth yeah what's your truth i don't think the truth exists very good but good at, <laughs> at the at the time i was an aspiring journalist who wanted to expose the truth ah, being right. yes. the yeah, yeah. the reality of a certain i guess ideology corruption or un, un, unjustified yeah. use of hierarchical power yeah. to uh, i guess prey on more vulnerable people and revealing that to people but i think it ended for me when i realized that these things were being revealed and nothing was being done anyway so how old were you when you came to that realization 18 no when i finished 20 21 something like that 21 yeah 21 so it's not a bright future is it you're 21 you've got this you know the truth there is no truth 
and that you can reveal horrors to the public as much as you like, whether yeah. it's in Burma, whether it's in West Papua, for half a million mm-hmm. people who've died in the independence struggle in the last 60 years, whether it's the climate emergency, um, nothing changes. 100% right. Yeah. 100% right. So was that a, how shall I say, a distressing moment for you or was it more liberating? Um, I think it was liberating for me because I'd like... I don't know, I'd invested so much of myself in this idea of, like, bringing, I guess, bringing to people's attention the injustice of the world. And, yeah, I guess through, through I guess, Melbourne's rally culture and just the sheer amount of exposure that was happening to the issues to people that I knew. And also I was working construction in order to support myself all the way through uni and all the way... You're working construction? Yeah. Well, that's why you look so fit and healthy. Yeah. <laughs> you're still working construction? Uh, I'm not currently working construction, but... No, no, I but just, you were then. So what were yeah. you doing, labouring or...? Yeah, I was in. I, was, I employed myself, and so I was a uh, subcontractor. Subcontractor, right, right. And so I did everything. Right, Electrical, right. plumbing, right. carpentry, concreting. Right. Built freeways, worked on railways, worked in f- oil refineries and Seems army barracks, and mm. what, did, what did you think of that type of work? Uh, it was grinding me down. It like took all of my energy to get myself to work, and then I like carry a notepad around in my pocket, and all day I'd be walking around, like working as as hard as I felt like I should for the amount of money I was getting, which was not much. And so I was just, you know, Mm. whenever I got a chance, I'd be like whipping the notepad out because while I was doing all of this bullshit, I was like thinking thinking and coming up with really good ideas. And so I'd just be like Mm. bashing out notepad every couple of days or something. Mm. And then every day I'd get home and be like, cool, I'm going to do something about all of these ideas I came up with today and then just crash. Crash. Physically exhausted. Yeah. Look, uh, this is Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR, streaming live on 3cr.org.au. I'm uh, having a chat with uh, Tim Neville. Uh, Kelly Whitworth is keeping us in control. She will be podcasting the program after the program. How ridiculous. I just said, oh, she'll be podcasting the program after the program. You like that? Tautology. No, I don't know if it was a tautology. Don't you? Oh, it's even worse. We're giving you a break, yeah. basically. Uh, Do you want some water? You it, some no, water? no you're, you're, you're doing good. Well, you're, you're yeah. halfway through the torture and you've passed with flying colours. I'll give you an elephant mm. and, a, and a star, a gold star. Black Spark is an independent, volunteer-run bookshop, gallery, music and community space in Northcote, Nam, dedicated to creativity, learning and liberation. Black Spark is a space for the entire community, free of charge, hosting art, music and literary events. To keep Black Spark free, open and accessible to everybody, we need your help. We are calling for your support for our rent fundraiser to keep our doors open into the coming years. With your support... We can continue to host book and exhibition launches, art auctions, fundraisers, music gigs and facilitate opportunities and growth for emerging artists and grassroots communities. For more information, visit Keep Black Spark Alive on chuffed.com or check out Black Spark on all the socials. Keep Black Spark Alive! A 3CR supporter.
so here you are, 21, physically exhausted, realise that uh, telling the truth is not going to really change anything. So was there a particular moment where you moved from working up the right channels or even working you know, in non-disruptive, non-disruptive direct action to disruptive direct action? Yeah, so after I gave up on journalism... And I had all this trading money. I decided to go backpacking for two years, and so mm. I was I was hitchhiking and taking taking buses where, around where 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 Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. uh, India, Nepal, um, Malaysia, Eastern Europe a bit, Western Europe, but it was sort of too expensive, so I sort of got myself out of there. Um, mm. uh, spent a bit of time in Morocco and. Um, came back home and just um, I don't know I used to have this optimism that people are good science is science is you know a very capable way of delivering the closest thing to, to reliable knowledge that we, we, we can verify and that that we that there is you know good people working on this there is good people providing the evidence and eventually the sort of, like, you know, realisation will come to people and something will happen about climate change. And I guess for all my, you know, cynicism about my future as a kid, I was very optimistic that the change would come. And then I got back after being away for two years. It wasn't, it wasn't like a, it wasn't a party. I was, I was thinking and trying to write a book and mm-hmm. meeting people. And So what lessons did you learn in those two years meeting uh, Humanity in its various guises around the planet, because that's an extensive road trip you took. Yeah. So, any particular lessons you learnt? Um, yeah, I learnt that, I guess, profit is d- destroying people's lives everywhere, is something that I learnt. I learnt a whole, I guess, it was it was my like really massive exposure to like the nuances of trauma that people have collected over time and the I guess breadth of life experiences that people have had and it's sort of like I don't know I feel like I learned more being overseas than I did studying at university and I had I don't know aged quite a lot in that time and come to I guess confronted with the degradation of the environment and the suppression of cultures and the oppression of people around the world and I guess was you know I'd had enough at that point and came back home and now let's just go back a step you said you were writing a book while you were traveling yeah well were you just making jottings or were you actually in the process of writing something yeah I wrote pretty much everything mm. you know in mm. a notebook you still got those notes yeah, I reckon somewhere. Somewhere. <laughs> I hope you find them. Yeah, really. I'm being serious because that, that's that is a life changing experience you're describing, which a lot of people not never able to to undergo. But you had that hard work, you had the trading money, and uh, you did that. And you saw the world, but not as a tourist, but you saw the world in a different way. You saw how it is, how it interacts, how people have to survive and struggle, and it had a profound impact on you. Yeah. So would you, you come back to Melbourne? Yeah, came back to Melbourne and sort of had a c- 
complete meltdown. Right. Like, absolute complete meltdown because I was broke and I had to go back to working. I had to go back to working construction. Like I'd spent heaps of time overseas doing volunteering and workaways and mm. couch mm. surfing and helping yes. people yep. cook. So I feel like that. I feel like all the domestic stuff is work. And so I was working while I was away, but it wasn't for profit work. And so I realized that nothing had happened about the climate and the issue had gotten so much worse and the science had revealed that the issue had gotten so much catastrophically worse because they didn't know that it was as bad as it was until... And that still happens every year. We think we're, we've got it under control and then a new realisation is made and then it's panic station, panic gets shared and nothing happens about it. But when, you say, when, you, when you say meltdown, was that just a mentally, physically or you're not able to leave at your room or...? Yeah, I was very depressed i was having panic attacks uh, the worst anxiety i've had my whole life i was seeing a counselor i was um i guess in the process of attempting my adhd diagnosis for the first time which didn't end up happening because it was too expensive um i was yeah i'd also while being away for that long had sort of lost touch with most of my friends here and the friends that I did have I was massively I'd guess outgrown mm. um, or they'd moved on or I'd moved on and so it was very very lonely and very very sad and miserable and just unable to do anything for quite a few months after I got home just trying to make sense of being back in this really nice clean comfortable place and not knowing how to move forward. Um, so, so what was the trigger that allowed you to move forward? Um, I saw people climbing tripods on the train tracks at Adani. Mm-hmm. And so that was, what, what, three years ago? That was january 2018 january 2018 so four years ago four and a half years ago so you saw that what on tv or the youtube Uh, or something tv it was on it was on (laughs) social media social media it wasn't tv too but social media right and i was like right this looks like it's actually going to cost some people some money and some time and some Ah, effort and uh, is that what dragged you out of the pit yeah seeing these activists involved in disruptive uh, direct action yeah, Adani, right. And so, what you made contact or? Uh, yeah, I joined. I joined a whole bunch of different direct action trainings that were happening at the time. I was mm-hmm. training with um, Flack Frontline Action on Coal. I was preparing to go up to Camp Binby in Queensland to, I guess, yeah, join the join the resistance as it were full time. Um, but I had this sort of, like, I was also trying to organise a similar thing to happen, but on the streets down here in Melbourne, mm-hmm. because I, f- I feel like I just had this sort of guilt about leaving where I was to go somewhere else to try and stop something bad from happening that had already been decided to be bad. Mm-hmm. And what I was trying to figure out was how do you stop the powers that be making the decision to do that in the first place? And I guess the 
I guess I was, before I had words for it, trying to articulate the idea of offensive direct action, doing direct action that isn't defending something, but it is attacking something mm-hmm. and taking a direct angle at and getting in the way of those that are actually making the decisions. And I feel like the only place to do that is where their ass is on the line if they don't respond, which is in the city. Right. But you haven't been able to organise anything in the city at this stage? Uh, not for 2018, but in right. 2019, Extinction Rebellion happened. Mm-hmm. And you got involved in that? Jumped on it as soon as, as, soon as I saw it was mm-hmm. happening and then uh, started running trainings and helping organise sort of, I guess, what were at the time felt like really radical actions, roadblocks and die-ins in public places and I guess building, like capitalising on this moment that was happening globally with the expansion of XR and I guess direct action coming to people who weren't at blockade camps, I think, for the first time in the climate movement in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And that was a really powerful thing because a lot of the people who were joining that space were not people who had come from, I guess, a direct action background. They'd come from a I'm fed up with writing letters and not getting responses sort of background or people who, you know, lifelong hippies coming together with young people coming out of uni sort of thing. And it was just like a boiling pot of diverse people who were really, really angry and really energised and... 2019 was the year for that. 2019 was the year of the school strike and the, well, the the school strikes, large numbers and the I guess the um, escalation of defence out at Jabrung in Ararat and all just all of these sort of like this huge moment of direct action that was happening in 2019. We obviously didn't anticipate what was going to happen over summer and then the pandemic right. the following year, but mm. that. That year, I cut my teeth in the activist world doing direct action. I learned how to do pretty much everything that was within the scope of Extinction Rebellion at the time. And it was, it was like, I guess, that moment where I was like, right, I'm going to do this full time. Right. I'm going to commit my life to this. And I guess I was using, I was using the like energy that, young Tim had at school and mm-hmm. I was I was using the skills that I'd learned doing journalism to actually tell people a truth or a reality rather that, that everything truth. is yeah. fucked yeah. and yeah. you who are watching us on the street need to put your shopping bags down and come and stand on the road mm. and it's a really powerful thing because you don't have to be the expert on climate science you just have to be the one who's willing to risk your liberty to convince people that science is worth listening to. Right. Well, obviously, the hiatus during COVID-19, um, how did you spend that time? Um, during the hiatus, I was... Um, well, it looked like a hiatus, but there was there was a good handful of us that stuck around and kept going and kept trying to find a way to get people active and working from home as everyone else was and mm-hmm. but it was 
completely devastating. I, um, at the time, was living in an apartment in St Kilda and working construction. I just decided that, like, like this is this is ridiculous. I'm spending all of my time building houses and freeways for rich people, and it's it's like harming my ability to, I guess, you know, do the thing. And I was really hoping for the construction industry to get shut down right. so that I could get, <laughs> I, so I so I could be working from home getting mm. paid job keeper you know but Didn't that happen. that never came at my workplace and so at some point I got fed up I quit my job moved out of my apartment sold my car and all of my things bought a van and um built the van and uh lived in it while I was building it outside of the I guess my last job site that I was working on skimmed you know yeah, timber whatever. and paint yep. and stuff off the job yep. and then moved into my car and then there I was 100% full time didn't have to didn't have to spend you know 10 hours a day working construction and I was able to devote myself fully to the cause and mm-hmm. that also allowed me to branch out into other sort of right. areas as well when when you say the cause could you define the cause yeah the cause is the uh, I guess collectivized struggle against unjustified hierarchical power or like fuck the system basically and so that's like climate stuff obviously but it's also it's also decolonization it's also like anti-extractivism it's it's mm-hmm. pro-community building it's mutual aid it's cooking it's volunteering it's helping people and helping yourself and unlearning what we've learnt through capitalism to be super individualistic and super productive and super, you know, on top of your own shit all the time. And so there's a lot of it is taking care of other people. A lot of it is taking care of yourself. And the the, the meaty chunk of it is right. devoting your time to getting in the way. Right. So what's happened to you in 2022? Yeah, so I uh, joined the mobilisation, the group called Blockade Australia in Newcastle last year. Uh, Blockade Australia, I guess, was the most radical offensive form of direct action I'd I'd seen in the climate movement since I'd started doing it. And, um, yeah, was uh, I did an action where I, along with another person, uh, broke into the world's largest coal port and uh, with um, harnesses and banners and a bunch of climbing gear, uh, we anchored ourselves to the train tracks that were on the bridge, I guess the main bottleneck feeding into the port. Uh, We attached ourselves to that train line, abseiled over the edge of the bridge and uh, waited there for hours and hours while coal couldn't be moved and we were I guess trying to make a, a narrative argument that the issue isn't we need to fix climate change the issue is that this colonial extractivist capitalist system imposed on this continent that we now call Australia is um, the issue mm. and that climate change and 
all 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 of these other things that we're each we're all devoting our individual time to are all symptoms of a systemic issue and we wanted to pivot that by getting in the way of things that were important to Australia and so we um like my co-accused and I decided that that was the co-accused I like that word so there were consequences then oh yeah so um Obviously, there were charges. Yeah. And this was in New South Wales. What were the charges that you're facing? The charges were the uh, hindering of mining equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I guess that charge is sort of in the same vein as going and cutting the brakes on trucks inside a coal mine sort of thing. Mm. But they charged us with that for getting in the way of the trains and we were given a corrections order of two years, which included some pretty high fines and mm-hmm. a, a promise of almost Being, almost certain jailing if we if broke you, it. If, if you were bad and, in, um, in their terms. All right. So is that court case finished? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that is over. We, um, in the process of the ridiculous overreach of these corrections orders, our, uh, our now current lawyer... Uh, came into the fold and uh, represented everyone on severity appeals and got everyone's corrections orders downgraded to essentially good behaviour bonds rather than these right. really hefty... Right. So were you charged under the new New South Wales laws or the old ones? Uh, no, that was the old ones. So mm. could, you, could you tell us about these new New South Wales laws? Because I think a lot of listeners don't really understand the draconian nature yeah. of these laws which are enacted to stop this type of, um, what to me is basically peaceful protest. You may call it offensive, you know, protest, but it, it's, it's, it's basically peaceful. I mean, you're not bashing people up. But, yeah. You know, it is peaceful. So w- tell us about these new laws. So in Newcastle, that mobilisation was chosen at the at the port of Newcastle because it was good people, blocking, bad thing. Everyone understands this. It's very easy to justify and, I guess, launch a new kind of politics with, like, this, you know, we're blocking coal sort of thing. But the the press interviews and all of the banners and all of the live streams, everything in that mobilisation was come to blockade Sydney with us on the 27th of June, 2022. And that was the message. And then in March, Blockade Australia, um, while I was on my corrections order and couldn't participate, but Blockade Australia organised a mobilisation uh, blockading the port of Botany, largest container port on the eastern seaboard. And that was, I guess, a pivot towards we're not just blocking bad climate thing, we're blocking a bottleneck of the system. And so... During that mobilisation, a strike force was created to stop Blockade Australia, uh, and they failed to do so. Uh, a new strike force was set up called Strike Force Guard, that was created in conjunction. From my understanding, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was created with the chief of police and the police minister. So That's it correct, was. Yes. It was. A, it was political. It, it was, was totally political. It was completely political, and the. Um, Strike Force was created with the stated aim of stopping direct action groups 
uh, radical. Could, could you just hone in on the minutia of the actual legislation? Because I think people need to understand the draconian nature of this legislation as a reaction to what is essentially peaceful protest. It may be disruptive, but it is peaceful. Yeah. So um, the laws were passed straight after the mobilisation at Port of Botany. Uh, we were promising to blockade the city of Sydney. And um, Sydney has this particular law that means if you block deliberately the Sydney Harbour Bridge, you face two years in prison or $22,000 in fines. And so as part of that, uh, I guess, police operation and in the context of Blockade Australia being very, very, very big news, very big political embarrassment for the police and the um, government of New South Wales... Uh, these laws were rushed through Parliament at radical speed and uh, basically those laws made, uh, I guess, every major arterial... It's vague as to what That's right. it yeah. is. Very vague. But basically the blocking of a major road or arterial or piece of infrastructure would be equivalent to the blocking of Sydney Harbour Bridge. So you would face up to two years in jail or $22,000 in fines. Mm. And not only that, there's a, there is a disruption by the state regarding any organising these protests. So even organising something becomes a criminal action. And that's what people need to understand, that organising, and I assume that's why you've got this uh, support from these lawyers pro bono, because it's... Uh, look, a lot of people don't understand that 20 years ago legislation was passed... Uh, that uh, criminalised occupations. And if you're a trade unionist and you're involved in an occupation, you can be jailed for up to 25 years. Mm. I mean, this type of legislation has happened historically over and over again uh, to stop this type, this type of activity. But this is quite draconian. We've got the same in Victoria now with the new legislation which we pushed through Parliament. Yep. Uh, very similar as far as the forests are concerned. Animal activists, again, anybody involved in direct action, peaceful direct action, it may be offensive but it is peaceful um, face these horrendous um, situations, I mean we were talking about helicopters breaking up meetings yeah. you know um, people being you know, taken away and arrested and charged just for going to a meeting you know, it's just extraordinary type of uh, over overreaction, overreach have you found any sympathy in the general public? Um, no yeah, it's not, difficult, isn't not, it? Yeah. Not until the raid right. up in New South Wales. Uh, we were we were camping together doing some, you know, flood relief stuff and also, you know, camping together with other activists prior to this mobilisation and uh, camouflage police were surveilling us on site and as far as we are aware, they didn't have a warrant or as far as we were at the, aware at the time, we didn't know they were police, didn't know they had a warrant and what ensued was the largest activist raid I've ever seen. There was hundreds of officers uh, arrested, a bunch of us. Two of us were charged with the aiding and abetting in the commission of a future crime. That's right, yes, that's the, a good one. Or having, under the Terrorist Act, having, uh, having inadvertent knowledge uh, regarding uh, a criminal act and for that, you can be taken off the streets 
interviewed for seven days. This is 20 years ago, the legislation. Was interviewed for seven days. If you've refused to answer questions, you could be jailed for up to seven years, so there's no right to silence. And if you tell anybody, you say to the missus, oh, where have you been the last seven days? Oh, oh, I don't know, I can't tell you. If you tell somebody, you can be jailed for up to seven years. So they're using the same format that the leg- federal legislation has. Well, I think, I think what you've done is you've actually highlighted how sensitive the state is. Yeah, to disruption, and I think the work you've done is uh, incredibly uh, not only brave, but it's more importantly than that, it's actually highlighted that uh, the iron fist behind the velvet glove, as far as the state is concerned, when it tries to deal with uh, disruption. Now, Tim, you've got any plans for the future apart from staying out of jail? Um, well, I'm on indefinite bail. Indefinite bail. What does that yeah. mean? Well, it means that we're supposed to have a court date, but the Cops asked for an adjournment on right. our case, but didn't set a date because they didn't know when they'd be ready. No, oh, right. They've got to collect their evidence. So I currently don't have evidence or a court date. And so I'm bailed to Victoria uh, indefinitely and um, also have to, I guess, I'm living under these really draconian non-association orders Mm -hmm. where I'm legally not allowed to make contact with or associate with in any way the 21 or so people they allege are part of the the criminal group known as Blockade Australia. Yeah, there's only one problem, Tim. There's a lot of Blockade Australia people around Australia and that's the difference. And sometimes when the state overreacts, it actually... um, uh, you know, increases sympathy for those people involved. So yeah. I think this is a gross overreaction, a gross overreaction as far as the state is concerned. It will backfire on them when people understand that, uh, you know, these so-called freedoms we have, we don't actually have. So you can't talk to anyone. It's a little bit like the old, uh, what do they call them, the old, um, uh, you know, when you couldn't associate with somebody else with a criminal conviction, consorting laws. Right, they had in the fifties and sixties, just like the consorting laws, you know. Well, Tim, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Hopefully, uh, your plight um, gets some people thinking, and uh, we'll wish you all the best for the future. And three uh, CR is here for uh, activists. That's our role, and uh, I'd like to congratulate you on the stand you've taken, and hopefully, the cost, the personal cost you've got to pay isn't terrible but that's a proposition you face so you keep to your bail conditions and uh, get those pro bono lawyers working for you because I think there is much more sympathy out there than you think there is so thank you very much for coming on the program thank you very much uh, Kelly and uh, we'll put this on podcast and um, hopefully other people begin to understand exactly what's going on out there thank you thanks Tim thanks You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.